don't know why. I don't know why. I mean, I was out quite late last night, right? So maybe my voice is like slower when it comes out of my mouth. And a little bit deeper. Well, yeah. You're I, talking more gutturally. I talk like this now. <laughs> Should we do our uh, our fabulous intro first? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm ready. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Our Minds on Music. Oh. Did you see the did you see the thing that I'm going to add years ago in Qingdao? So this is 2003 maybe. I had started experimenting with MIDI recording at the time. You know, I really hadn't done much of that before. I think it's called My Die, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> From Leipzig. <laughs> Anyway, where it started. Oh, so good. Yeah, not as good as the terrace. I mean, we're we're. I want to get I want to get Starbucks on board. So. Oh, it's just as good as well. It's a you know. It's a. Yes, you had a video that you did. So what I did. Oh, I, you, oh you had a mix that you did. Right. Video. So I had found this great mute muted trumpet sound on this keyboard. Right. At the time, my perception was that it was a great sound. Right. Right. And so I recorded this song trying to imitate the style of Miles Davis. Yeah. yeah. So I called it Almost Miles. Yeah. I'd kind of forgotten about it, actually. It was like on a hard drive somewhere, you know, as so many great songs are. Rick Beato talks about that in one of his episodes. I guess he was talking about, like, hard drives, but also tape, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you find it and go, oh, yeah, great song. I, I came across a bunch of Coltrane stuff that they have on Apple Music. That's that amazing. was that way as well. That was, yeah, just lost for years. Nobody yeah. knew it was there. Um, so anyway, so I'm going to add that. So I call it Almost Miles, and I'll actually include a little bit of the video. Tell the people. Miles Davis. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, we have something special down here in Atlanta this evening. You don't define jazz. Jazz is just like a, an attitude. See, music is nothing but style. style. So we're talking in this episode about um, jazz, and we're going to give a little timeline of jazz, sort of like the from the beginnings as we understand it to today. But what we're focusing on is the bebop era, the beginning of the bebop era, and then a little bit of how it sort of evolved. See, a lot of the stuff that I, I more or less knew, and I think you did too, but I just thought I better do my research and get you know, get things straight. And there was a lot of stuff that I found out that was so cool. Yeah. You know? Um, so why don't, we, why don't we do this? You've got some stuff here, and I've got some stuff here. Why don't we see what we can combine? Okay. I'm going to suggest that we take a look quickly at uh, a start. little snapshot of a timeline of jazz. So basically the eras and the history of jazz music, right? Mm -hmm. Early jazz, um, a lot of people would say there are things that definitely built into this existing but calling it jazz was in new orleans 1920s well yeah but even a little tiny bit earlier on the on the, at least on the video that i saw there was a dude and i can't remember his name you're going to put it there because i'm going to tell you later what it is he's going to put it right there is and, it uh king no king oliver king, king oliver, oliver yeah. no but he's yeah so he was one of them um but there was a guy um that traveled from new orleans to los angeles and then to chicago before the talking machine came out, the Victor, Vic, Victoria, Victrola, Victrola, talking machine came out and this guy missed his chance. Mm. He was going to be the first guy recorded. Wow. And he said no, because he didn't want people ripping off his riffs. 
Wow. Wow. And so he wasn't the first. That was in 1917, and that was the year that um, sort of the uh, the ragtime, mm-hmm. they had sort of ragtime, and uh, that was sort of the, the beginning of the big band and, and ragtime era, right? Again, I, I wouldn't say... Not the big like, band era, sorry. The ragtime. The ragtime stuff. New I, Orleans jazz. Right. And again, I'm... I, I'm talking about when it started to be recognized as such. Mm-hmm. You know, like Louis Armstrong. Oh, in the 20s, for sure. It, I mean, they popular. They, I mean, Louis Armstrong, the right. flappers, you know, that was all. Louis Armstrong started to learn the trumpet. He he had gotten into some trouble as a young lad and was put into, like, a house of detention, you know. Wow. And he started to learn the trumpet while in, in that place. But you mentioned King Oliver. Did you do a little dig in on him or no? No, just from my Louis Armstrong. Okay. My love for Louis Armstrong. Yeah, he, he played with King Oliver early days. Right. I think yeah. that was his first chance to play like in a band, you know, yeah. and huge. Like that was a big, big thing for him, you know. And in even in later songs, he sings about King Oliver. J A W Z. yonder in New Orleans, in the land of dreamy scenes, there's a Garden of Eden. That's what I mean It was heaven right here on earth With those beautiful queens I went down yonder in the Orange blossoms, sweet aroma And the strains of La Paloma Seem to put you into a coma When those sad men would play We would dig the cognoscente King Oliver and Parente Swinging the tiger, that's a plenty Until the break of day and, and the thing about um, Louis is he sort of was, he did a little scatting back in the day. Yes. And sort of started off that. And that's Because that's an element of bebop that is pretty pretty prominent. Well, they suggest, I think it was uh, Dizzy Gillespie who actually said it in an interview, but a lot of people have said since that actually the name bebop comes from scat. And it was just like one well, of the here, sounds that they made. You know, I got this from uh, the uh, Merriam-Webster website. Okay. The name bebop is simply imitative in origin. It came from a vocalized version. An onomatopoeia, of, will you? Thank you. Onomatopoeia. Now, this this comes up in comic books. Boom, pow. Yep, yep. It comes up in rap. It comes up in... We talked I, about it in episode six with uh, Lucas and, J- and Jamie. Remember? That's right. That's yeah, right. Batman. So but here's something that, that interesting that a guy said. He said, with scatting... Because instruments were more or less invented to, in many cases, to imitate the human voice. Interesting. And scatting was invented to imitate the instruments. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Right? Because you listen to um, Ella Fitzgerald, to me, is the master. I mean, she can, her pitch, her phrasing. She does that. She does it exactly the way the instrument does it. Her pitch is impeccable. She can do octave jumps. She can do interval jumps. You know, like an instrument does. Oh, totally. Yeah. Little, 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 little
if she had perfect pitch. She must have, because it's just picture perfect. Spot on, yeah. That's and, amazing. Uh, I never thought about Ella Fitzgerald if she had perfect pitch, but now I'm thinking it totally based on what you're saying. Totally makes sense. And she would she would flow from the lyric into the scat just effortlessly. You know, I got to say. It's just fresh in my mind, but Lou Reed, there was an interview with him where he talked about Ornette Coleman, and he said that about Ornette Coleman. If you want to hear an instrument that it doesn't just imitate a human voice, it's it's it becomes human, mm. you know? He said, listen to Or Ornette Coleman. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you are so connected to your instrument that you can do that, mm -hmm. that's when you, you've pretty much reached the pinnacle of... Of musical success, I think you know. That's interesting. I've never, I, I've never been there myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you say that, but actually, we talked about this the last time we talked as well. Sometimes you get into this zone where, yeah, every every musician who's really worked at it hits that point sometimes. Yeah. And the band, when the band hits it together, when it's a chemical thing between oh. the between the players. Oh. All right, so sorry. Let me finish the, yeah. the timeline thing because. Yeah. So after the New Orleans 1920s, then there was the swing and big band era, mm -hmm. right? So can we talk about swing versus big band? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I they're, would... They're kind of the same. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I would say that it's like the, the band formation playing a type, a genre of music. Right. But one of the things that happened with big band is when swing, they realized, like that song that I was referring to just now with uh, uh, Louis Armstrong mentioning... King Oliver. Mm -hmm. It's actually with Bing Crosby, and it's oh really? And it's I. I'll play a clip of this song because they talk about when swing became like the accepted form of music, and it became. They didn't say this in the song, but it became very commercial. Well, sir, you know we caught on. What's more, it was strictly bon time. Cause like a winner at starting gate, your music got it and gone. It moved from over the tracks Into the society shacks It was wonderful And deductible from the income tax You better dig that jazz band ball Cause it's the ball of them all When the trumpet player takes a monologue The people shout, well, who got dog? And if you ask how come that yell they kind of grin and then say, well, when the band plays J-double-Z, it's B-A-double-L. When the band plays J-double-Z, it's B-A-double-L. All through the, the Second World War, it was perfect for a really difficult, harsh time for people to listen yeah. to this um, Tommy Dorsey. And it was listenable. It was danceable. Danceable. And it was... And it was uh, yeah, it was it was lifted people out of their out of their and and it's it's interesting you should say World War Two because the one historian that I listened to he sort of delineated World War Two as the as the reason why it switched from big band to to bebop which is they were drafting more guys so they didn't have as many band members to work with mm. the gas prices were being controlled because they wanted all the gas for the war so people weren't traveling to uh, you know. To, to see see all of these big bands, and of course big bands are expensive, eh? more expensive, and um, and it sort of led to, it wasn't the, necessarily the cause of big bebop because bebop was there in in, in smaller forms before right. it broke out, but mm -hmm. it just led to the emergence of bebop. Yeah, um, a name that some people watching will say, 
how could you not know that name? It's one of the biggest names in a bit. Um, Charlie Christian. Yeah, no, I'm not the guitarist. Yeah. I was not familiar, and you know, I was not familiar with that name. And for those of you who this are, this is the part where we all laugh at you. But I'm, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I'm actually going to add in a soundtrack. Do it. Canned laughter there. What a maroon. Charlie Christian. I didn't know that name, and it turns out I suggest from the little research that I've done, that he was basically a pivot point mm-hmm. between swing the swing era, yeah. right, that happened during the war years and all that, yeah. um, to the bebop stuff. Mm-hmm. In fact, I found a video that's called Swing to Bebop, mm-hmm. and it's a song that he's playing. I don't know if that's the name of the song. I think it is. Yeah. And if so, it's like... You're going to play it right now. Yeah, I'm going to play it right now. He was a swing player. He was his sister Christian. Christian? <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting is, okay, so sadly he died in 1942. Yeah, a lot of these guys died young, man. Really young. Yeah. And so he was, I think, set to be the the vanguard, the beginning of, of But the guitar players, you know... Which is crazy. How would we're that talking have changed about, the face of things? I know, because we're, we're talking about... Uh, Piano-based drums combos with horns, usually. Yeah. Sax, right? a lot of sax. And, and it, it's either a trio or a sax and trumpet, trombone, right. which we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so that's interesting. So Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'm mentioning these decades, like the 20s, New so Orleans 30s. the 30s, big band and, yeah. the, and the swing thing. But definitely the beginning of the 40s. I would say the 40s is when that half a decade change thing started to happen. Yeah, there was about a five-year... Thing, you know, right? Yeah, but but, so. they, but the other the other thing that I heard and and uh, you know I'm not trying to be too political politically correct when I say this, but it just you know I think the black musicians were a little bit peeved that it was all European, uh, i.e. white mm-hmm. musicians that were becoming popularized mm-hmm. with the big band stuff. I think it was Charlie Parker who um, no, I think it was Dizzy Gillespie. He said. We didn't want to record a protest. Right. We recorded music that said in music what we wanted to say in yeah. words. You yeah. know, the protest was in... Very cool. So bebop was protest music. It basically, yeah. <laughs> it was them saying, listen, we have this voice. It's really strong. It's powerful, and it's going to be huge. And, you know? and they looked at it, too, and they said, like, what, what they're doing, what Big Band and, and Swing is doing is entertainment. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do is art. Yes, yeah. Well, that was that was one of the big things. I have a list of some of the differences between swing and bebop, and yeah. one of the main things was the somebody said, you know, in swing, uh, the 
or in bebop sorry you had to come to the music you know you were an audience and you right. had to come to it whereas swing the music came to you yeah so you'd be standing there on the dance floor ready to dance and then the music would come to you right whereas in bebop and so and it was you, more even intimate if, even I if mean, you the, weren't there it even the places happen. that they played i think were a lot more intimate mintons yeah mintons playhouse talk about it second floor it's in harlem yeah. it's still by the way new there. york was the the heart and soul of bebop I mean, there's totally, totally. all, almost all of those musicians without a, without fail are from, not from New York, but plied their trade in New York. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it extends a little bit because, uh, Rudy Van Gelder, who was doing all the recording. At his was time. that house? Because Stan Levy was talking about a place where all of these famous people lived, you know? No, he was at that same place. No. no, this was like at his parents' house in the living room. Yeah. So he was in New Jersey. And he, I, he was an optometrist. He had studied and was a working optometrist while he was recording <laughs> Miles Davis. An optometrist who uses his ears. Oh, that sounds like an article that our, our Mind on Music happens to have. <laughs> Maybe I should make a link there. Um, yeah, it's of Sight and Sound is an article that I wrote for our Mind on Music um, our blog. He's been, been very blog. prolific I, recently. Prolific is a good. He's been really using that is the his word. noggin lately. Yeah, we're so proud of him. <laughs> <laughs> so proud. Go ahead, Rudy. Um, Rudy von Gelder. So he was in New Jersey, um, and so these these players would drive out to. Little... Oh, really? They went out to New Jersey. Yeah, oh, people would would make their way out to New Jersey. Um, and go to this. When you say guys, people, who who are we talking? Miles about? Davis, Thelonious Monk, John never Coltrane. Heard never heard of him. Never. <laughs> Dorothy Ashby, who is um, an amazing harp player, jazz harp. Wow, you got to listen to Dorothy Ashby. You know Milt Jackson. Um, oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Man, Milt. Yeah, Milt okay. Jackson. He just he's got an album with uh, John Coltrane that I listened to last night as well. Just, I mean, it's so different with the, with. Uh, a vibe. Yeah. But <laughs> look at that. It's a totally different vibe. <laughs> it's giving vibe. Okay. He's a vibe. vibe He's a vibe player. player. Yeah, vibe Jazz vibe remote player. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. Um so let me So let did me... he but here's the thing. He <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, uh, go ahead. Shut up. <laughs> go ahead, don't talk. <laughs> no, did he did he uh did he get some of these bebop guys as well or was that he in, more in the cool jazz phase? He kept going, in fact, he recorded up until he passed away. And, no, but I, I'm just saying when he started, was he His connection, his big thing was he became friends with the guys who started Blue Note Records. Ah, uh, okay. Um, especially one of the guys whose name is appearing as I say this. Amazing. It's like a, a bird with a little... Oh, there it goes over there. There it goes. <laughs> we'll go over there now. <laughs> um, and that's what happened. So he became friends with this guy. He loved jazz, and I guess that's how that friendship... And he was what? He was doing what for them? Recording. He was the recording engineer who, right. like when he first recorded Miles Davis, literally, he got home from work from the optometrist office, set up the mics in the <laughs> living room. Is it the craziest thing? Yeah, yeah. Sets up the mics in the living room, and Miles Davis and his band play. Now, have you seen any video or, or some kind of photo that, to, to see what this thing looks like? I think at that time, they might not have wanted everybody in the jazz community to have a vision of them in a suburban home living room recording their songs, right? Um, and there was um, what seems to have been an urban myth, but apparently 
Rudy Von Gelder, the main thing about recording back in those days especially was the mics. Not that that's totally changed now. Mics are still important, right? That's yeah, why we but have. you can get around stuff with, right, with, with lesser and equipment and stuff. And so he was very protective of his mics, especially there was a Neumann mic that he had had um, tweaked for uh, close miking, you know, Ooh. which is basically a lot of people say that had a lot to do with um, Frank Sinatra and the, the crooning type of style because they did the close mic. Then he would have been earlier, I think, if he was doing that. Oh, I, th I don't you think know, 40s -ish? Yeah, I don't think he necessarily started at that point. But okay. in the 50s is when he was recording, like, yeah. everybody yeah. out of his parents' house. Okay. Until, like, the late 50s. I think it was, like, 58, 59, something like that, when he, just, when he said, you know what? This is going pretty well, actually. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I'm like, no joke. He yeah, just yeah. recorded everybody I've ever heard of in jazz, yeah. you know? Um and he said, you know, maybe I'll quit the optometrist thing and I'll, <laughs> and I'll open a studio. Yeah. Um, so. And so he opened a studio. Um, so Bud Powell, okay, who's a big bebop guy, mm -hmm. um, he must, I just answered my own question. Because mm -hmm. there's a uh, Rudy Van Gelder uh, version of, of a couple of his albums. about Rivon Gelder more than the fact of like just a cool story that he just kind of fell into and was so good that he was then sought out by everybody right yeah. that's a really cool story read the article because it says more about that but what I love is he just loved it like, in the like 90s somebody sent him an email saying would you like to do a remaster of your recording of, of Thelonious Monk mm -hmm. and he's like a lot of people when they heard that, they said, oh, so you probably said, forget it. Like, you know, that's my work and I don't want to. And he's like, what an awesome opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I've got this new equipment. I can do things that I just wasn't, wasn't even a possibility back then. I love the fact that really up until the day he died, he was just loved it yeah. and did it for the love of it, you know. Yeah. And I really think a lot of the great sound that we have in these especially earlier bop records. Yeah. Is because that guy yeah. loved it and spent a lot of time thinking about how to get good recordings of it. Well, you know, you got to think about these recordings that were made in the 40s, 50s, and they, of course, they've been remastered, you know, and fiddled with to get some, some of, of it by out, him. Some, some of it by him. <laughs> um, yeah, there was one. One of Bud Powell's was in 2001. Um, you're on. Um, I haven't gone through the timeline. Go for it. <laughs> Go for it. So. Swing and, and Big Band comes out, um, basically is recognized by, by the 30s. You know? So, and they're, and they're characterized by what? <laughs> swing and Big Band are okay. characterized by? So, it's a danceable music. Swing was often a fast tempo for the purpose of dancing. It was also melody, a mm -hmm. little bit of harmony, but melody. And there, was, there was a lot of thick chords mm -hmm. in, in yeah, Big sure. Band, of course. It was about the... Like you said, the melodies, right? Yeah, and yeah. Then, well, there was and, and a lot more vocals in uh, in big band as well, right? Yeah, and they had the hooks, including the vocals. And the guys were doing the, some of the guys were doing the unison, ba ba ba, just like in the background, just like nonsense note, nonsense uh, words in okay. the back, right? right? And they just repeat them like da da da. But you also have like the Cab Calloway, yeah. you know, 
which was, again, it was about dancing. So the drum beat was very straight. You'd hit, you'd hit the one, the one in the th- the one in the three on the kick, the yeah. two in the four on the snare. So yeah. you know, whereas one of the big departures of bebop was that they said, well, we're not trying to get people to dance. We're so messing we with the mel- we're messing with the rhythms. Yeah. So that's yeah. when they start playing behind the beat. That's Is it when... okay if I do the rhythm thing from here? That's I think it fits this this discussion. Sure. I, I want to talk to people about triplets and that shuffle and swing vibe. Mm-hmm. And basically all it is is like you've heard of a waltz. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to them now because you've heard all this stuff. So one, uh, one, two, three, one, two, three is the waltz, right? One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. But if you that's, turn that that's in. the conducting pattern if you're conducting a three, four. It's a triangle. Okay. And then so when you go, it, 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 you, can, you can do it as a, as a four beat. Or two beat, you can do six eight or twelve eight, which would be one two three back to one two three back to. So you're going one and two and three and four, right? So that is a twelve eight, and then you turn it into a swing by deleting or, or resting on that second note of the triplet mm-hmm. or the second note mm-hmm. of the waltz, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, right? So you're doing da da da. And you can, you can then you can do all kinds of things. You can speed up. You can do you can, go, you can do all kinds of things. Listen to that video, um, the Rick Beato one, and that guy takes it right from the beginning. So you know where he said that come from? He said it comes from the Civil War drummers. Okay. Who were trying to mix it up because they had to march with their their army to okay. keep them going, right? Okay. Because they were marching hundreds and hundreds, oh, not hundreds of miles, but they were marching miles and miles and miles, right? Trying to keep them going, and so he, you know, usually, and he shows the the, the marching beat on there, which is mm. you know really cool. And mm. Then he goes, and then they would just mix it up and, and start doing a, <laughs> a shuffle <laughs> based on the railroad tracks, the the rhythm of the railroad. Wow. The that's can you believe it? I couldn't believe it when I was, and it makes total sense. But, but this became a whole genre. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, right? Like, so, so we're talking about a rhythm that lasted until well into the '60s. You know, really, I mean, from uh, from ragtime all the way up to the '60s when jazz 
started to break out of that shuffle mode and started to do more straight ahead. And it came beats back and 16 like, beats. Like you were saying, it came back like with some of these guys in the in the 90s, the, the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. And I just think it keeps coming back because it's such a great thing. Like sometimes people will do a song that doesn't have a swing beat in it, but then they'll just go into it for you know, right. a couple of bars yeah. just to like call back to that yeah. and, and then break out of it. Well, and the other thing is like, the, the, this is not an easy rhythm to play. It sounds easy. Mm. All the way back to well, blues, mm -hmm. obviously is, is a... Well, that's what I was thinking because that's 12-8, right? The blues... Right? So if you just speed that up... Yeah, that's all right? it is. It's fast blues. Yeah. And actually, the, the, the cool jazz thing they talked about in that video that I saw is they, they were trying to get back to a more bluesy form of of jazz. Let's just, let me just say, after bebop, there's cool jazz, there's hard bop, modal jazz, Latin jazz, Brazilian jazz, all of those sorts of like... It, sort of in the 60s is when it really took off, It right? blew up, yeah. right? And then avant-garde and fusion started to say, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about modal jazz in a bit, 1959, four huge albums come out the mm -hmm. same year. One of, one of them, which is my all-time favorite ever in life. Right. First thing that Lincoln heard before he ever... No, actually, that oh. was Giant Steps. Oh, that was Giant Steps, which is because my that, one. But that was, that was kind of a, you know, a welcoming song for him, you know? Giant Steps. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but Kind of Blue is absolutely my favorite. Okay, so we have early jazz, New Orleans, 1920s. We have Spring and Big Band, which is the 30s. We have Bebop, which is the 40s. Cool Jazz, which goes into the 50s. Uh, hard bop, modal jazz, the Latin jazz and Brazilian jazz is the 50s to the 60s. Mm -hmm. In the 60s going into the 70s, you get the avant-garde and the fusion. Lots more electronic stuff as well. Yes. The synth yeah. Synthesizers started well, being used. I think, and... I think about Al Di Miola with, um, what's the, the Spanish race with the devil? or Oh, oh yeah, right. Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. Down, down. I was playing that the other day at home, and I was just like, I love that. What about Spain? I mean, jeez. Chikoria. Yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. And also, Miles Davis was hugely instrumental in he all was, of this. He was, he was in on all of that stuff, and he, he actually had that album. You, you speak of Brazilian, but he had that album, Sketches of Spain, mm -hmm. which was just, I mean, beautiful. Un yeah, unbelievably great, good. Great. After that, we get into the 80s, the 90s. We have New Jack. Beautiful. Beautiful. Huh? New Jack jazz. Um, I, I didn't write it down okay. here, but we have the New Jack sound, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and big band kind of made a made a uh, like um, first it was uh, they made a bit of a thing it was Zoot Suit Riot, mm -hmm. the Zoot Suit guys, mm -hmm. yeah, and um, uh, the guy from Brian Stray Setzer. Cat, Brian, Brian Setzer's, and Colin James, Canadian sure, guy, sure, absolutely, and Just his came big band, to say goodbye, fabulous big band. A stuff. tribe called Quest in the '90s invited Ron Carter. The like legendary bass player, but yeah. they invited him to play on one of their songs. What were we talking about, Ron Carter, last time, or maybe in between episodes? weren't you telling me something about Ron? Didn't he like you or something? Yes, a... yeah, I I posted like us, you like us, yeah. the The article that I posted on about Rudy von Gelder, um, Ron Carter is on Twitter. So uh, Ron Carter liked and I think even retweeted my notification in, in Twitter about that article and I was like, oh, that's like... So cool, right? That's like a... I had a dream about my man yeah. last night and my man came by the, the studio and his name is Buster Rhymes in effect. Shahid is in effect. Fife Did All is in effect. Check it out and give me my spec. 
I'm moving, yes, I'm moving, cause my mouth is on the motor. Use the coast in the morning to avoid the funky odor. Can't help being funky, I'm the funky abstract brother. Funky in the sense, but I play the undercover. Once had a fetish. This is one of the things that I love, though. I love this evolution of jazz, because when you listen to Thelonious Monk, one of the things that he did, in my opinion, masterfully, was he mm -hmm. did the stride piano. Right. Which was 20 years before his time, but he did it in a way where... He took it to the next level. No, I mean, he 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 messed with it. I don't want to get too far off, but mm -hmm. Art Tatum was in that sort of ragtime slash swing era. Okay, but but he was just stride, pretty much all the way, and 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 I mean stride. Can you explain? Stride piano is where you do a you know a bass note in the left and a chord with the with the left hand as well. Usually an octave up, and then while you're doing that, you're 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 kind of playing the whole thing, right? And you're switching chords. And then you're playing the melody in your in your right hand. Thelonious Monk. Great No Chaser is one of his albums. It's one of his songs. And it's a documentary that was made in the 80s, produced by one of the producers was Clint Eastwood. Mm -hmm. And um, Just a Gigolo. Just a Gigolo, which... I'm just a Gigolo. Okay, so Louis Prima brings it out. It's kind of a, a bit of a novelty song, the way that he presented it, with his wife as the, the female yeah. singer. She used to she used to do all that, like, throw in... Sometimes for, she wouldn't even be singing. She'd just be looking at him, like, with funny looks, you know. I think they were hilarious. Yeah. Very talented. Yeah. And just a Gigolo. And everywhere I go, people know the part I'm playing. Paid for every dance, selling his romance. Oh, the scene. There will come a day, and youth will pass away. What will they say about me? When the end comes, I know there's a just a jiggle-o's. Life goes on without me. Then you get David Lee Roth in the 80s that brings that song out again straighter than the original. Yeah. Rhythmically. Yeah. Thelonious Monk does his version of it, and it sounds like he's falling down, kind of. Right. But he's so consistently just that much behind the beat. He's so consistently, like, yeah. for me, I, I actually love it. What do you think he's trying to say with the way he's doing it? I'm messing with the rhythm. I want you guys to know this song 
And I want you to know it doesn't have to be played that way. But what about what about the idea that he's he's also telling a story besides that with because that song has lyrics, it has mm-hmm. you know, for people it already had a a, a the, context. The song in their head, yeah. Right? Yeah. So he's saying this is my interpretation of this song is that that guy is a little bit off. The guy in the song That's is a little amazing. Bit off. I wonder if he it wouldn't surprise me because I really do think Thelonious Monk and he used to play up some of that some of that stuff too. Like people said, Oh, you know, all of that is influenced by alcohol and drugs and some of it. But yeah. some of it was him sort of playing up that because he was actually just messing with the rhythms so yeah. much, you know. So I, I really love Thelonious Monk for that reason. And that song is one example of where people will listen to it and go, what are you talking about, dude? The guy cannot play the piano to save his life. <laughs> you know? That's, I mean, you know, that's, for me, Thelonious Monk is the way that you maybe feel about Charlie Parker, is that you can see the the influence, you see the the uh, the pioneering aspect that he had. And it's not your your go-to listening. Okay, so this is finally when we, we can bring in the song Thelonious, mm-hmm. right? Love it. Which you picked. I love it. You picked, because I mean, for me, it's like, which one do you play? You play that, and let's have a look. Okay. Um, play Thelonious. Okay. Play. Playing right now. about Thelonious Monk, uh, the song Thelonious was a great choice because it has so many of the things that I like about his playing. He's playing behind the beat, probably an um, amount behind the beat that is still very listenable for people yeah. 
today, you know. Whereas I, like Justin Gigolo is an say, extreme example. I just want to say too that that um, you know when you talk about quantizing in in MIDI, mm-hmm. back in the day, I never got good at this, but we would try to swing it mm-hmm. enough that it would feel human. There's there's a function in quantizing. Uh, quantizing is when you fix the rhythm of of a digital recording. Yeah, so everybody plays a little bit off the beat. Right. So quantizing will bring all the notes perfectly onto a beat, not necessarily the beat that right. you want. Well, even even on a free app like uh, GarageBand, there's a swing a swing, a swing option yeah. in the quantizing. This song, he he plays a little bit behind the beat. He's got some of the aggress aggressive playing that Neil Santos and I talked about in yeah. episode twelve. Yes. Um, which I think was part of the thing that influenced a guy like Jimi Hendrix. Mm, you know, yeah. the fact that he would like hit the strings, you know. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix wanted to sound like a saxophone player, so he was from a slightly different age, but I just mean that that style. And there are moments in Thelonious the song where he does that part that I talked about once where he goes down a chromatic scale. So on a piano, that's the white note, black note, white note, black note, all the way down. And it sounds like he's just dragging his finger, but he's not. I've seen that video that you showed me, which is also, but that's in that song as well. Right? Yes, yeah. yeah. It sounds like he's just, because he's playing it so fast and so precise. It sounds like he's just going, but he's actually playing it. Yeah. The same guy who just a moment before was playing just Slight, be- slightly off. Slightly off. And purposely. I said, I said here, our episode 12 is the one you want to go back to, Neil yep. Santos. Yep. Um, you and Neil were talking about how Monk played with rhythm in a delightful way. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can dis- uh, 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 So, Thelonious, which is that song, Thelonious, right from the get-go, it sounds loose, mm-hmm. but perfect. There was a drummer that I played with, um, Baguettes, he actually plays in Zazu. Okay. And this guy could play a 9-8. Okay. Until the 36, you know, so, so it'd be like 9 times 4 would be 36, right? Right. Yeah. So on a song that we're playing, mm-hmm. which is a straight ahead four four, okay, he'd play nine eight, and he would play nine eight for four nine eight bars, <laughs> and come out perfectly on time with us, and he didn't lose a thing. So Alex Roy was one of those guys. Yeah, he would change maybe the feel so that it technically changed the time signature, but Mark and I, the bass player and the guitar player, you keep doing what you're doing. We didn't change the time signature. Yep. People and listening you- would be thinking we're just playing. You know, Black Magic Woman, yeah. you know, just Santana. They're just playing a Santana song. Yeah. But Mark and I would be like, hold on, man. <laughs> just don't lose it, you know, because yeah. I can hear it and it's it's like throwing me off a little bit. But it, as we got better at that, it was such a cool thing that he would like mess with the timing. Yeah. I mentioned Alex Roy and then we have to finish up because we're going to finish this portion <sighs> Of this episode, Muse, every time. That's so much more to talk about. We have so much Look more. all my notes. This, this uh, episode uh, is really, I said Scratching that when you, the surface. when you suggested talking about like Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane, just that, I was like, that's a deep dive in itself. Yeah. yeah. And here we are, we have. This is probably seven or eight episodes. <laughs> well, you're five minute episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Alex Roy just started this um, solo side project he's he's in a ba- band called Plastic Pets I think it's called nice so you should look that up it's in uh, Portland Oregon send me a link send you a link send yeah. these guys a link I'll send yeah. everybody a link send, me, send us a link links everywhere but, but definitely search the interwebs for uh, for Alex's project it's 
instrumental music that sounds like it was recorded on a, like on a DAW, you know, like a... Oh, yeah, right. Sounds like it's um, all digital stuff, but it D-A-W, isn't. Digital Audio Workstation. But... DAW. DAW. But it's actually him playing the drums and playing all the stuff. And, Great. And just playing with um, effects units separately from... Looking like, forward to hearing not that. on the computer. It's really cool. Yeah. So... Well, thank you for a great episode. Thank, thank you, you for joining us. Thank you for the research. I, Finally. This guy. Like, but that's, that's good to have, and, and uh, I think, you know, I might do I might do research in the future. I like it. I like it. All right. It. Oh, man. <laughs> Don't forget to like and subscribe. Good night.